Will you please open your Bible to John chapter 17 if you haven't already? If you are using one of the Bibles that we provide that you find under a seat in front of you, you'll find John 17 on page 587. And I encourage all of you to follow along. So open those Bibles to John 17. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, you'll find that on page 587. And before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we come to week in and week out when we get to listen to the preaching of your word. And we pray that your spirit would be active in this room now, active in me as I preach and active in all of us as we listen and help us to understand things that otherwise we won't understand and then change us, God, by the power of your word. For those that are here who love you, who know you, I pray they'd be encouraged in their faith today. And for those who are here who do not yet know you, uh, we pray that they would come to know you now through the preaching of your word. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 of John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, What is Jesus doing? He's praying. Jesus is going to pray here. He's been walking and talking with his disciples on the way to this garden. They started talking in this room and left that room and continued to talk on their way. And we studied that in chapters 14 and 15 and 16 where Jesus had a lot to say while he was walking and talking with his disciples. But now, at the end of chapter 16, he is done with his disciples, in a sense, and he turns his attention now to God the Father. So he has been looking at, speaking to, relating to his disciples. It's horizontal. Now he goes vertical. He's done with his disciples. We'll see in this book of John. And he lifts his head to heaven and he says. So he is praying. This prayer recorded by John it's a 26 verses long, as John records it. By far the longest prayer that we have recorded of Jesus. Basically, there's three parts. He will pray for himself in verses 1 through 5. He'll pray for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And he'll pray for future believers. That includes me. Might include you. He prays for future believers in verses 20 through 26. So, really interesting. Longest prayer of Jesus right here. 26 verses, praying for himself, then praying for his closest friends, his disciples, and then praying for his future friends, future believers in verses 20 through 26. 
And here's the thing, you can learn a lot about someone by listening to them pray. You can learn a lot about each other by listening to each other pray. You can learn what someone is thankful for. You can learn what someone wants. You can learn what someone believes. You can learn what is important to someone by listening to them pray. So, during a school year, if you're with me or my wife in a car on the way to school, you will learn that it is important to our school-aged boys that they do well in school. So they're praying, God help us to do well in school. If you're listening to my little four-year-old girl, Avery, you will learn that Kitty Marie is very important to Avery. If you're listening to me or my wife pray, you would figure out what's important to me, what's important to her. It's going to be no different with Jesus. We're going to learn what's very important to Jesus. What's important to you? What is important to you? What comes to your mind? What is most important to you? Is it health? Is it financial security? Safety? Being watched over? Is it family? Is it comfort? Is it success? What are you asking God for over and over again? Therefore, what is most important to you? Is it these things? What about glory? How important is glory to you? How important is God's glory to you? Does it make your list? Is it the top, is it the middle, bottom? So let's listen to Jesus pray. And uh, specifically this morning, since we're only looking at the first five verses, let's listen to how Jesus prays for himself. That's fascinating, right? How is the Son of God going to pray for himself? Verse 1 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So did you hear three parts right there? Did you hear three parts to what Jesus just said? Number one, Father, the hour has come. Number two, glorify your Son. Number three, that the Son may glorify you. There it is in these first five verses. That is, as Jesus prays for himself, that is his request. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. There's his request right there in verse 1. Verses 2 through 5, we'll see, offer support. So let's take those three parts one at a time and see how 2 through 5 
Help us to get what Jesus is talking about. So number one, the first part, Jesus begins this prayer, Father, the hour has come. So who is Jesus praying to? The Father. His prayer is addressed to the Father. If you are here, do you remember what we learned last week through the words of Jesus about our prayer direction? If you weren't here, we learned that generally speaking, when you pray, especially when you're asking, who should you direct your prayers to? The Father. That's what we learned. Generally speaking, Christians, when you pray, and especially when your prayers are asking, you should direct your prayers to the Father. In chapter 16, verse 23, you could look at it again if you want. That is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples to do and what they're going to do. And now what has he just done? He, now he sets the example for them. By doing the same thing, he turns his face to heaven and prays to the Father. And why, why should you Christians direct your prayers to the Father, especially when you're asking? Why should you do that? Number one, Jesus told you to. That's a good enough reason. But number one, Jesus told you to. Chapter 16, verse 23. Number two... The Father is the originator and the giver of every good gift, James 1.17. So if you're asking, go to the Father, because any gift to you, it's going to originate with Him, and ultimately He is the giver of that gift. And third, why should you direct your prayers to the Father? I thought this was the best, because He loves you. Because he loves you. We're getting real personal now. So I direct my prayers to the Father, especially when I'm asking, because he loves me. That was the point, remember, of verse 26 and 27 of chapter 16. Jesus clarifies, hey, you're praying, I know, in my name, but I don't want you to think that means that I'm like the good guy and he's the bad guy and God the Father's grumpy and angry and I'm the lenient parent here and so you come to me and I'll pass your request on and maybe he'll say yes. That's his point in 26 and 27. No, it's not how it works. Go to the Father because he loves you. Loves you as much as I love you. A, a little small practical application. I think I mentioned it last week, but I felt like I wanted to mention it again today. Parents, you know, your kids know, you love them if they ask you. It's a compliment. It can be annoying sometimes, can't it? Can I? Can I? Can I? Will you? Will you? Will you? Parents, you know that your kids know you love them if they are not afraid to ask you, to ask you for answers, to ask you for help, to ask you for fun, to ask you for time, to ask you for gifts. 
So what is one of the most important ways, parents, that you can connect with your kids? What is a very practical way to demonstrate love for your kids? Say yes. Say yes. All the kids are looking at their parents right now. <laughs> They're thinking, this is the greatest sermon he's ever preached. I mean, you got to get in your mind, that is God the Father, right? God the Father is a God who says yes over and over and over again. Right, we've said this before, look back at the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a garden of yes with one tree of no in the middle. So parents, be those kind of parents, right? There's times you need to say no, but when you say no, you're saying yes to their good, right? That's always the point. So yes, yes, yes. Your heart should be to say, yes, I want to do this. I want to give this to you. I want to make this happen. That's the desire. So he directs his prayer to the Father. You direct your prayers to the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. So there's the context or the timing of this prayer. Here's what's going on. The hour has come. The hour. For the longest time in this book of John, when Jesus spoke of the hour, it was this time that was far off. Chapter 2, verse 4, 7, verse 6, chapter 8, verse 30. The hour, it's coming, but it's, it's, it's not here yet. And then in chapter 12, you might remember, in verse 23, in chapter 12, some Greeks came to see Jesus. Or you could say the nations came to see Jesus. And this signaled to Jesus that the hour was upon him. It was very close. So then he starts speaking of the hour differently in 1223 and 1227 and 28. And Chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, and now again here, the hour is come, the hour is here. What, what hour? Well, if you read through all those verses in John, it becomes very clear that he's talking about the hour of his death. The hour of his death and his resurrection or his glorification the hour of his death is coming. So when Jesus says in this prayer, Father, the hour has come. Here is Jesus finally, right? The inevitable and climactic hour had come. The greatest hour in human history. The hour of his death had come. It's right around the corner, he knows. It is the hour where he will be arrested. He will be deserted and humiliated and abused and murdered and buried. So have that in your mind when you're listening to Jesus say, the hour has come. The hour for me to be arrested and deserted and humiliated and abused and murdered 
and buried. The hour had come for Jesus to be forsaken by his friends. The hour had come for Jesus to be forsaken by his neighbors, his countrymen. Most significantly, do you know this? The hour had come. What was he dreading most? The hour had come when Jesus would be forsaken by God himself. You remember what he cried out on the cross at that point of ultimate pain, suffering, agony? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd never experienced that before. Fellowship with God the Father, with God the Spirit, right? God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, loving one another, exalting one another, delighting in one another. For how long before that point? You, I don't know what to say there. You can't, for eternity past, you, you can't even in your mind figure that out. Go ahead. Just keep going back. How long had they been in fellowship with one another? Forever past. And now on the cross, what happened? Fellowship broken. Father turned his back on the Son. So when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, this is the hour. So in that moment, Jesus, knowing what lies ahead, what is he going to pray for himself? Right? Are you excited yet to... Here, what is Jesus going to pray for himself when he knows that that's what is right around the corner? So that brings us to the second part of this request. Father, again, in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. So the second part of this request, glorify your son. Glorify me. Incidentally, look down at verse 5. Verse 5, you will see the same root request, don't you? And now, verse 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory of that I had with you before the world existed. So his prayer, his hours come, is, Father, glorify me. And then he says it again in verse 5, glorify me. So to understand glorify, we need to understand glory. That's what glorify is about. It's about glory. What is Glory. Well, here's one way to think of glory. And I, I tried to think about what would be the most helpful here. Trying to use the English language to communicate this idea of glory that is sort of foreign to us. So that could be kind of tricky. So here's what I've come up with. Glory is 
God on display. Just think with me for a minute. Because you've got to get glory. We've got to get glory if we're going to understand his prayer here. Because this is what he's after. Glory is God on display. Glory is God's attributes on display. Glory is God's character on display. Glory is God's worth and value on display. Glory is God's godness on display. Glory is God on display. And God's glory is everywhere if you have eyes to see it. And some of you remember that day when, I didn't know this was here. It was right in front of you for years, right? You didn't see it, or you mocked it, or it just it was over your head, and, and, and something happened, and you saw everything differently, and you were like a, a little newborn baby. It's like you had been born again, and you were seeing the world for the very first time. So some of you... Right? You, maybe you got saved later in life. You remember the sharp contrast. It was darkness to light. And it was, it was vivid. And so God's glory, right? God on display, His goodness, His character, His worth, His value. Now you see it all over the place. This is what John Calvin meant when he said something to the effect of the universe is a theater for God's glory. That's what he was talking about. It's on display. Don Carson defines God's glory as the visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure. So if you like a more complicated definition, you can think about that. The visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure. Glory is God on display. And you see it in creation. You see it in the Word. And you see it most clearly in Jesus Christ. Here's how God reveals Himself to us. Through creation. Through the Word. Through His Son. You see God on display everywhere you go. In the Old Testament, maybe this will be helpful as we really think about what glory means. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites, God's people, when they would think of God's glory or the glory of the Lord, they would think of that experience of visible and active presence of God first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Remember, so God came to Moses and said, build a tent, build a tabernacle. 
So they built it exactly the way God told them to build it and then dedicated it. They dedicated it exactly the way God told them to dedicate it. And then do you remember what happened? The glory came and filled the tabernacle. And it was visible and active. In the day, it was a pillar of cloud. At night, it was a pillar of fire. And they said, that is the glory of God. It is God on display. Later, through Solomon, God said, I want you to build a permanent tabernacle, the temple. And listen to 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. Listen for glory. God on display. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire, this is after he dedicated the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, what did they do? They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. God's people, when they heard of the glory of God, they would think of this active and visible presence of God in the temple. So what happens, think through Old Testament history, if you know it, about 1,500 years before Jesus comes, you have, we're reading here about this tabernacle, then you have this temple, and then you have the destruction of the temple, where God's presence was supposed to be dwelling, and God's people were led into exile by the Babylonians, do you remember that? Daniel. And then later, after Babylon was overthrown, God's people were given permission to return back to Jerusalem. And so, no surprise, what did they do when they got back? They built the temple. And they dedicated the temple, just like they did back in Solomon's day. But do you remember there was something very different that didn't happen? The glory of the Lord did not fill the temple. So you have people, right? Where is God on display? Where is his glory? Where is his glory? Where is his glory? Where is his glory? For hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, do you remember how John began his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14? He said, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So glory is God on display. And you see it most clearly. It was all to demonstrate. You see this most clearly in Jesus Christ. So read back through John. What is Jesus doing throughout his ministry he is ministering for the glory of God. He is displaying the power and the majesty and the mercy and the justice and the greatness, right? The attributes, the character, the worth, the value of God. He is displaying God. Remember in John eleven four, Lazarus has died. He comes to two broken-hearted sisters, and he says to them in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for what? The glory of God, 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So it's Jesus, right? Glory of God, glory of God, glory of God, displaying God, displaying God, displaying God. And now it's very clear. It is very clear that to Jesus, this hour of his death is going to be where his glory shines most brightly. This is where his glory is going to shine most brightly. Jesus know that as, as he approaches this hour. Chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. What hour? What's the hour of his death? But how does he describe it there? In chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man, not to die, that's not what he says, for the Son of Man, remember, to be glorified. This is where my glory will shine most brightly. Which is why he says here in our text today, at the hour of his death, glorify me. So he is praying, Father, display the beauty, the power, the worth, and the value, right, glorify, of your Son through my death on the cross. He clearly believed his greatest glory was going to be displayed through his death on the cross. So stop for a second and think, how can that be? Maybe try and forget what you know. Because that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That my glory, my greatness is going to shine most brightly as I'm betrayed, humiliated, abused, murdered, and buried. Does that sound like glory? Does that sound like strength? Does that sound like greatness? Does that sound like victory? It doesn't sound like any of those things. That looks more like defeat. That looks more like weakness. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, doesn't that sound crazy to you? Is he deluded? You wonder if the disciples thought that. Here comes glory, here comes glory, here comes glory. And you imagine them waiting for him to call down angels or something to rescue him. And how far is he going to let this go? And it goes all the way to him breathing his last on the cross. That does not look like glory. That does not look like strength. And yet Jesus is saying, buckle up, get ready. My glory is about to shine brighter than it has ever shined before. So what is going on? Is Jesus, is he confused? Many would say that today. Dismiss the meaning of the cross and 
say that he was, in fact, deluded on this point. Maybe he was a great teacher, but he was deluded on this point, and he died. My wife and I love having boys. We have five boys and one girl. Just so you know that. And we love having boys. And if you've had little boys, yeah, maybe this works for girls too, but if you've had little boys, you're familiar with the phrase, watch this. As soon as boys can talk, that's one of the first things they're going to say. Watch this. Now, when you hear, watch this, that, that often does not end in something worthy of praise. <laughs> That's the way I could say it. Often, right? So often those words precede a trip to the emergency room. So we get excited when our kids say that. We want to see what's this going to be. But often it does not end in something worthy of praise. And I think when, when you're, you're reading Jesus up until this point, it, it, it kind of sounds something like that. Like Jesus saying, okay, watch this, and then it's a dud. Open your Bible. Look at look at. After this prayer, look at verse 18, and, or chapter 18 and chapter 19. Look at the headings. Okay, some of you, your Bible, if you, you like mine, I have the ESV. They add these little headings to kind of give you an idea of, of, of what's coming. Okay, so here's Jesus saying, it's time for my glory. I mean, just look at the headings and, and think about whether or not this sounds like glory is coming. Chapter 18, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, and then... Jesus faces Annas and Caiaphas. Peter denies Jesus. The, the high priest questions Jesus. Peter denies Jesus again. Jesus before Pilate. Chapter 19, Jesus delivered to be crucified. The crucifixion, the death of Jesus. Jesus' side is pierced. Jesus is buried. So we have a question that we cannot get around. We have to answer it. What is it about the death of Jesus that displays glory? That doesn't look like glory. That doesn't look like greatness. So let's go back to the text and see how Jesus explains this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Here it is. Verse 2, since, or for, or because, or just as, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What, think with me, what did Jesus accomplish? Verse 4, he says, I've accomplished the work you've given me to do. What did he accomplish? Here is the glory. Here is the beauty. 
What begins this verse? That word since, I said, or for, or because, or just as. Those are words that are signaling to you that what follows is the ground of Jesus being glorified. So here's what you have in verse 2 and 3. It is the Father and Son's plan of redemption. This is how through the cross God is going to be seen in all his splendor. The justice and mercy of God meet on the cross and sinners will be saved. Through his death. And that displays the greatness of God. Let me read those two verses again. Verse 2. Since you have given him, that's Jesus, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh. And what does God the Father give Jesus that authority to do? To... Give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So, so what are we learning here? We, we could bring other texts in to understand this. So, the Father gives an untold number of people to the Son, and he dies for every one of them, and they are forgiven and saved unto eternal life. I mean, that's what he's packing in there. And this, we should pause after we read this, and this is eternal life. What's eternal life? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so let's pause. Here is the good news of what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. And listen carefully to what he says here about eternal life. Those of you who are here and who are Christians know that you have been given eternal life. Those of you who are here today and you are not Christians and you're hearing that you may have eternal life. What is that? Please don't water that down to living forever. That is very clearly not all Jesus is talking about. When we think of don't you, when we think of eternal life, we think of more the quantity than the quality. It's just eternal life. I'm going to live forever, which is true. But Jesus says here, this is eternal life. And then what does he say? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life refers not so much to the quantity of life, never ending, as it does to the quality of life. Eternal life, according to Jesus here, eternal life is seeing and knowing God. That's eternal life. And that's what's great about it. 
Eternal life is seeing and knowing God. Did you hear what he said? He does not say, look, look at it, look. And this is eternal life, that they know that you are the only true God. That's not what it says. That's intellectual knowing. He doesn't say, hey, this is eternal life. You know that he is the only true God. No, eternal life is you know him. This is relational. You have been brought to God, relationship with him. One commentator said, eternal life comes from knowing God and Jesus, the sent son. Knowing God is not confined to intellectual knowledge, but entails living in fellowship with him. That they know you implies an intimate relationship that involves actually knowing God as a person. That's what's at stake here. When Jeremiah speaks of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, he says there's a day that is coming when everyone in the covenant is going to know God. It's not like this old covenant, right? It's not like Israel where you had believers and non-believers and the believers are telling the non No. We know God. There is also a day coming, according to Habakkuk 2.14, there's debate over whether or not this will happen before or after Jesus comes back. But we are told that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where things are headed. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So put it together. That's what the Son is doing here. Through his death, God's eternal plan to save sinners would be accomplished. There's the glory. There's the beauty. That you are here today and you were born in rebellion against God. You were born not deserving love from God, but deserving justice from God. And the older you got, you just proved this. Sinner by nature and sinner by choice. No one was making you do the bad things you were doing. No one was making you think the bad things you were thinking. No one was making you say the bad things you were saying. I needed no help there. Good at it. Really good at it. When it came down to it, I want to go my own way. I want to go my own way. I don't want to bow down to a God. I don't want to kneel down before a God. I don't want to surrender my will and my desires to God. I want to go my own way. So Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord, here's the good news, 
the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Where did the Lord lay the iniquity of us all on Jesus? At his hour. So, I don't know if you see it, but I see it. Do you see why Jesus can say, the hour is coming where I am going to be glorified. So, Father, glorify me. Glorify me. Display your greatness Display my worth and my value and my power and mercy and justice. And everyone's looking at the cross going, that's defeat. And God knows, no, this is victory. This is victory. Because this man is dying willingly for his people, taking their punishment so that they can be forgiven and have life. So Jesus grounds this glorifying that's going to happen in this plan of salvation. God's eternal plan to save sinners is about to be accomplished. And Jesus is praying, do it, do it, do it. Let's see this through to the end for the joy set before him. He's enduring the cross. Awesome. Awesome. Now, that is, I think, usually where we end. Right there. It's altar call time. Come just as you are. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the salvation of sinners. That's not where Jesus ends. Can I say this? It gets better than that. That might sound like heresy to some of you. What do you mean it gets better than the salvation of sinners? And I'm telling you, he's not done. It gets better than that. There is something better than the salvation of sinners. His prayer is not save sinners. Just think about that. I mean, the saving of sinners is how something else is going to get accomplished. Are you hearing that in his prayer? So his prayer is not save sinners. That is not, we could say it this way, that is not his ultimate priority. If it was, save sinners, period, altar call. That's not it. That is not his ultimate priority. Or let me say it this way. That is not what Jesus is all about. The salvation of sinners. It's actually bigger than that. And it's actually better than that. There is a third and very important part of Jesus' request. You remember it? Let's read verse 1 again. And you tell me what is the ultimate purpose in his request right here in verse 1. We're just going to finish it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
So can you answer the question? What is the ultimate purpose of this request of Jesus in his darkest slash brightest hour? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that I may glorify you. So what is Jesus' prayer here? What is most important to Jesus as he approaches the cross? What is he after? Answer, glory. Whose glory? Ultimately, the glory of God the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. G. Campbell Morgan said, The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. Just, you're putting it together. That's just what Jesus said. Just look at what he said. My priority is glorify me. Glorify me so that you get the glory, God the Father. And that's going to happen because you've given me authority to accomplish something, the salvation of sinners. And so that is a means to your glory, God. So the end of the story is not your salvation or the salvation of sinners. It's bigger. It's better. It is the glory of God. We need this truth so badly when we are so tempted to put ourselves, even as Christians, at the center of everything and to make it me-centered and man-centered and my counseling turns out like that and my family turns out like that and my church turns out like that and my friendships turn out like that and the preaching turns out like that. But I'm not at the center. The glory of God is at the center Jesus died so that his father would be glorified. You cannot escape that here. That's not usually what we say. We say something penultimate. We say something great, but it's not ultimate. Jesus died to save sinners. That's great news. But there's greater news. Jesus died so his father would be glorified. Jesus is saying, display my beauty here on the cross so that your beauty will be displayed. So I wonder if you're okay with this. I wonder if you're okay with this. I wonder if you find that helpful or unhelpful. I wonder if I, if I tell you that Jesus is not all about you, that rubs you the wrong way. I wonder really what you feel in your heart when I say that Jesus is not all about you, Jesus is about God. I mean, that's very counter what, what I believe for a long time. 
And you know what my sort of mantra, I can remember thinking this was, I am I, I am all about Jesus because Jesus is all about me. And this, these kinds of verses just made it impossible for me to say that. But when you say that for a long time, it's hard to stop saying that. But it is not true that I am all about Jesus because Jesus is all about me. The truth is that Jesus is all about God. And it's not just here in this text. It's all over the place. It's all over the Gospel of John. John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. Don't you love this? God the Father said, oh, I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. <laughs> I don't know if it was that tone, but that's how I hear it. The Father's like, on it. John 13, 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And then we're not surprised when we get just five verses of Jesus praying for himself, and his prayer is, God be glorified. Even God is all about God. So let me wrap this up. Let me just make a couple assertions and then let's take a quiz together. Briefly, here's some assertions based on our text today. Number one, Jesus died to save sinners. Amen. Amen. Don't you water that down. Jesus died to save sinners. Amen. Number two, Jesus died to save sinners in order to glorify God. Amen. Or, Jesus died to save sinners to display the beauty of God, the justice and mercy of God. Number three, we're just making this one long sentence. Jesus died to save sinners in order to glorify God so that the universe would praise Him. So that the universe would praise Him. So the end is praise and worship. Now let me also root that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following. And I want you to see here, illustrated, that Jesus died to save sinners. Amen. In order to glorify God. Amen. So that, here's the end, here's the purpose. So that you would praise God. So listen. Salvation is not about me. That sounds weird to even say. Well, I'm the one that got saved. <laughs> True story. But it's not about you. Listen to God's agenda here. Three times in this 
opening chapter of Ephesians. I'll begin in verse 3. This is so, listen to how he describes your salvation. If you're a Christian, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. So all that that he just said is why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory, period. Did you hear that over and over again? Your salvation is meant to end in you praising God's glory. That's the point, not your salvation. God is glorified in your salvation. So, a two-question quiz. Those of you who are believers, saved sinners, whose worth and value is displayed on the cross? The answer God's. You see, I'm just quick, though, to turn that inward. Well, mine. He saved me. And he wouldn't have saved me if there wasn't something good about me. (laughs) I mean, that's my assumption. If you make much of me, I assume I'm a big deal, at least to you. And frankly, I like the way that feels. (laughs) That's how my mind works. So God saves me. I mean, I know, right? All of grace, glory up. But, I mean, come on. He saved me. Didn't save everyone. He saved me. I think heaven will be a better place because of it. (laughs) That's where that goes, right? So we can't do that. That's not what the cross is. The cross is not a statement about my worth and my value. The cross 
declares the worth and value of God that he would save a sinner like you and like me. Second question of the quiz, saved sinner, what is the ultimate goal of your salvation? The praise of God. That you would see and know the glory of God and you'd praise Him to the praise of His glorious grace. The practical implications of this are massive because this calls for an entire ordering or reordering of my life where the glory of God and the praise of His glorious grace is at the center. That means everything I do, my work, my play, my parenting, my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with my neighbors, what I do for fun or leisure, sports, school, everything, everything must have the praise of God's glory at the center. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, I don't care what you're doing, Paul is saying, do it all for the glory of God. So friends, back to that very first question. What is important to you? Is it health, financial security, safety, family, being watched over, comfort, success? How about God's glory? Does that make your list? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we hear and can know because you've revealed yourself to us. And so we thank you for this time together this morning as, as a people, as your family, to think about your great love for us, to think about your call for us. And we ask now, God, that you would settle these words deeply in our heart and that you would change us that we would become more like you, that we bear more fruit, become more godly, more holy, more pure, so that you would be praised, so that this world around us would see, come to know your greatness. Thank you for the rest of the time we have together this morning. We pray you be glorified in, in all of it, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.